The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. The war in Gaza continues to dominate headlines, and it has sort of global uh, repercussions, you know, not only in the Middle East, but we're seeing protests all over the world. And it's dividing political factions and political parties all over the world, not least of which is the Democrats. Joe Biden is pursuing a bear hug strategy with Benjamin Netanyahu of giving like total public support with a few rhetorical cautions. And their claims that they're he's challenging the Israeli government more in private, but certainly the, the, the public face that Biden wants to present is of like very strong support for Israel. And this is a contentious issue within the Democratic coalition. There are many Democrats who are who share Biden's position, but there's an increasing number, especially among the young and among people of color who don't. And we're seeing that in the sort of protests that are going on. And also, I mean, very interestingly, the sort of internal dissents within the government itself. We've seen unprecedented scenes of White House staffers and congressional staffers joining in protest or um, holding vigils uh, for what's uh, happening in Gaza. Um, we've seen a dissent channel within the State Department um, circulating uh, critiques of Biden's policies. Um, and uh, even within uh, an organization like the DNC, you know, which is, you know, as establishment an institution as one could want. And anyone who joins it is kind of looking to climb the ladder of worldly success in American politics, there's been a significant number of staffers who have signed a petition in dissent. And this internal critique is joined by external critique of massive public protest. Now, uh, it looks like this is all going to play out. This disagreement within the Democratic coalition is going to play out electorally. And this brings me to my guest, Alexander Salmon, a political writer for Slate, who's written a really great informative piece about how APEC, the, I guess it's described as a pro-Israel lobby group, is one of the largest lobby groups in America, is, is set to invest heavily in the coming election with a particular agenda of targeting those Democrats who are more critical of Israel, notably the squad, who have been at the forefront of pushing for a ceasefire. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, let, let's get started. So what's the story here? What's the, uh, as they say in the biz, the, uh, what's the nut graph? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the rub. Uh, I guess, so now we're officially in the 2024 cycle, right? The 2023 yeah. elections are behind us. And so it's sort of like, it's it's all 24 from here on out. And, and the story, which I think is going to be really one of the primary stories of this election cycle, despite, you know, all the focus on Trump and Biden and everything else, is that that APAC is is uh, is is basically preparing to spend an absolutely gargantuan sum in Democratic primaries to basically to to knock off progressives and critics of Israel. It both is about Israel policy and it isn't about Israel policy, but it's they're going to make uh, a totally unprecedented move to to challenge incumbents. Some of them are many term incumbents who have been around for a long time, who are very popular who are, you know, some of the most prominent Democrats in the country, certainly the young rising stars of this party. And they're going to, as an outside group, spend what I've, what I've heard is at least $100 million in these Democratic primaries with a particular emphasis on those squad members. So there are five in particular that they have already targeted, four of whom they've 
recruited opponents for and one more who they're actively, enthusiastically recruiting for, and there may be more to come. Okay, so I think that gives us sort of the lay of the land very clearly. Now, obviously, you know, the Hamas attack of October 7th and then the Israeli campaign in Gaza, and also one has to say the Israeli campaign in the West Bank, because there's a tremendous amount of violence there as well. That has all like, you know, made all these issues much more salient. But actually this sort of, you know, Israeli lobby distrust or hostility towards the new generation of progressives, it predates all that, right? Like this is actually a story that has sort of like longer roots. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, yeah, obviously this story is about the sort of changing landscape of, of popular sentiment towards Israel, which is a really big part of it. It also is about the changing nature of APAC, which has just changed as a group dramatically. It's, it's, it's you know, has gone in, in just a few short years from being like a bipartisan organization, which is how it, you know, sees itself and presents itself to really being an organ of, of the Republican Party. And, and that mission creep has been really, really pronounced both in hiring in terms of um, who they brought on from the RNC, from the evangelical world. Like you look at the, their top staffing and, and you can see it. But exactly, as you mentioned, despite this, you know, sort of paradigm shattering event that happened on October 7th and the fallout thereafter, this is really a response to, to something that happened in 2021, which is that after the the evictions and, and violence in Sheikh Jarrah, which is, you know, with, where the Israeli military and a bunch of settlers pushed Palestinians out, of this neighborhood, the a number of progressives in Congress pushed for conditioning military aid to Israel, which is something that just hadn't really mm. been part of the conversation in any meaningful way. And that was a huge, huge shift. And so when that became something that was even a viable policy position for a, a small handful of Democratic electeds, APEC really kicked into, into high gear. And so Immediately thereafter, the sort of coming election cycle that followed, they made a massive intervention into Democratic primaries, which they had never done before. This is something that was totally unprecedented for them. They don't play in primaries. They don't play in Republican primaries still, but they made the, put this campaign together to spend via various super PACs. And there's a lot of sort of hide the ball action with this where, you know, they fund pop up PACs and they'll, they have all these other sort of affiliate PACs, but they ended up spending upwards of $30 million in largely in open seats and where there were retirements or redistricting had drawn, you know, uh, multiple candidates together. And the campaign was basically to get the most right-wing candidates into those safe blue seats to knock out any perceived critic of Israel, of the Netanyahu government. And it was overwhelmingly really successful. So they really did manage to overwhelm the Democratic primary process. And that really set the tone for what we're about to see. Okay. Now, one thing maybe that to highlight, though, is that when they went into these primaries with super PACs, were those super PACs talking about Israel, saying that, like, you know, the candidate that we're supporting is very pro-Israel and that the one that we are opposed to is not friendly to Israel? Like, did they actually try to make Israel a salient issue in those primaries? Absolutely not. Yeah. It, I mean, if you look at the... And this starts in 2021. It actually starts in a special election in Ohio, where Nina Turner, who's the well-known Bernie Sanders delegate, former campaign affiliate as well, was running against this woman, Chantel Brown. And they came in huge in that race. Nina Turner was seen to have a, a, a huge advantage in polling. It looked like it was an open and shut sort of race. They came in millions of dollars, huge spend, and no mention of Israel policy. I mean, very, very scant mention. And we're talking about across 
18 different races eventually that were in, they got involved in some way, shape or form. Israel policy is not part of the messaging at all. It's 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 and there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, the messaging is really, you know, this more conservative Democrat that we support is supports Joe Biden, is the real Democrat, is the you know, it's you know, we'll get this get the Democratic agenda passed. You know, it's it's incredibly sort of dishonest in 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 the way it presents these this messaging. But critically, no mention of Israel policy because the is the Israel policy that APAC supports is not popular amongst Democrats. It's really not popular amongst Americans broadly. And we've seen that now with these recent polls, mm-hmm. but especially with Democrats, it does not it's not gonna move people to vote for a congressperson. It's gonna move them to vote against them. And so yeah, that that has played no role in 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 that messaging. And and it's critical because, you know, it is ultimately also about other Republican agenda items and Republican policies. It's 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 not just about Israel. It's about a number of things that, you know, the conservative faction of this country would like to see enacted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no. So I because I, I think that, that, that that's a kind of an interesting point. Just that, you know, it's become a side of politics that dares not speak its name. Like you can have pro-Israel money that spends in primaries to advance its agenda, but like it won't do it so under its own names, it will, its own stated agenda or its own agenda, but like make other claims. The um, uh, other thing, as you said, was a lot of this happened in sort of like open seats. Um, did they invest in like trying to challenge incumbents in 2021 and 2022? Not really. Yeah, it was mostly yeah. open seats. There were a couple of instances where there were two incumbents drawn together uh, by redistricting. So it was kind of an incumbent, you know, but there, you know, also their candidate was effectively an incumbent. The most, I think, acute example of this was in Michigan, where Andy Levin, who's a mm-hmm. progressive, a really strong pro-labor progressive from a, you know, a famous political family in Michigan, who's a president of a synagogue, like someone who's a very prominent Jewish member of Congress, one of the most prominent Jewish Democrats ran against Haley Stevens, who is not Jewish, but because Andy Levin was strong on labor, because he, you know, espoused a hand, you know, a handful of of very progressive policy positions, but also because he had cr- criticized Israel in 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 a very marginal way and in the in sort of J Street affiliated way of being for a two state solution, and he's still a self identified Zionist. Even they came after him. They spent four million dollars in that race. To ensure that he got knocked out, and in favor of you know someone who was more loyal to 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 APAC, and and they got what they wanted. Uh, they they knocked him out, and largely, yeah, we're talking about open seats. We're talking about drawn together districts. It, it, taking out an incumbent is a very different uh, operation, and I think that that's yeah that that that's a change that we're seeing from cycle to cycle here. That's really notable. Yeah. So the the issue of incumbency, I think, is important because normally, like political parties, you know, like aside from whatever ideological claims that they might make, they are really job programs. And a big part of the job program is, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You want to incumbents like to defend other incumbents. Like, that's the kind of like the bargain that holds a political party together, you know, like I'll support Nancy Pelosi and then she'll like help me keep my seat in primaries. And that's really the way the Democrats have behaved in the past. Like, 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 so how do you think the Democrats as a party will respond to challenges to incumbency? Because I think, you know, like they in the past have been very hostile to progressives who have like challenged incumbents. So, so, so does this set up contradictions within the way that, you know, the Democratic Party as an organizational entity 
sees its mission or sees how it operates. Yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a contradiction that's actually so extreme that it the the sort of weird inaction so far on this is, is it's impossible to sustain. Like it's going to go one way or the other. But right, this is a party that adores incumbency, and and it, this is actually embodied best probably by Hakeem Jeffries, who's obviously the new uh, top ranking Democrat in the House, the minority leader, and. Jeffries is is a champion of incumbency to a fault, right? To to an extreme, mm-hmm. will defend incumbents, you know, who who are opposed to democratic po- priorities on all sorts of policies. It started a super PAC or or at least a political action committee um, not long ago, just for the purpose of defending incumbents against progressive primary challenges. Like this is someone who's incredibly dedicated to uh, protecting incumbents. It, and that's, you know, that's been the, the mark of leadership in, in, in the House for a long, long time. Pelosi and Hoyer and Clyburn are all like this. At the same time, Akeem Jeffries is an APAC guy. I mean, he's a real APAC guy. And if you go to the APAC website, he is all over it. It's like, you know, they got video montage. There are photos of him. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the, his top donor group from the 2022 cycle was the Israel lobby. There's no question about his allegiance to this group. And so it puts him in a very interesting situ- position. It's a very interesting situation because it's like, here's someone who is an avowed defender of, of incumbency, you know, no matter what. It doesn't matter if the this person is an opponent of all the policies that Jeffries wants to see passed into law. He will put money. Leadership has always been like this money, endorsement, advocacy, campaigning for incumbents. Basically, no question is asked. Um, at the same time, APAC has, has sent a lot of checks his way. And so he, right now he has been unwilling to say, this is not acceptable. We're not going to let this group raise money from Republicans and then spend it in Democratic primaries and and jeopardize not just the incumbents, but even the majority. I mean, this is something that has the has the risk of really blowing up and costing them, them seats. And so it's not just about moving the sort of political pulse to the right. It's also, you know, it sort of it puts those that, that math into, into question and and so far, Jeffries has not been willing to say this is unacceptable. We can't let an outside group run roughshod over the Democratic primary process. But at some point, they're going to have to do one thing or the other. They're, you know, either the DCCC and the House a Majority Pack is going to have to spend exorbitantly limited resources on protecting these incumbents, or it's going to just engage in you know incredible self defeating hypocrisy and, and let this happen. So one or the other, but really a, 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 a turning point moment. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And to maybe highlight that contradiction that you've spoken about, there's a congressman in Texas, I believe. Is it Henry Kriller? Yeah, uh, Cuellar, yeah. Oh, yeah, go, go, Henry uh, Cuellar, yeah. He, now, now, this is, he had a primary challenge, and he's someone that one would think Democrats would be dubious about. I mean, he's anti-abortion at a, at a point where, you know, the party has very good reason to try to, like, you know, emphasize its pro-choice stance as strongly as possible because that is very electorally successful for them. But, you know, and he was challenged by a sort of progressive challenger who was pro-choice. But Nancy Pelosi and the all the other Democratic leaders, they they, they really rally to them. Like they, they you know, this is a send in the cavalry, uh, cavalry moment because he would have lost if the party elite had not like really rallied behind him. And he just very narrowly squeaked out a primary victory. Now, you would think that, well, this guy had benefited from incumbency. Like, does he support the the idea of incumbency uh, protection above all else? 
<laughs> Certainly not. Yeah. So we thanks to thanks to a, a keen-eared American University student who was at a who Henry Henry Clare spoke to at a in a in a lecture got just a couple of days ago now I guess he yeah he said that he had spoken to Hakeem Jeffries after you know the story that I did at Slate ran saying that APAC you know was going to spend a hundred million dollars on Democratic primaries in this cycle with a focus on knocking out uh, incumbent squad members incumbent progressives. And he said that he had spoken with Jeffries and encouraged him not to intervene, not to not to spend on behalf of those incumbents, not to protect them, and to let APAC basically do its thing and knock them out, which is incredibly wild because the the double standard here is 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 you know it's 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 galling because right as you say like two separate times now Quare has been on the ropes, needed support. Massive financial support, which he got from APAC and its sort of affiliate super PAC groups, but also from leadership who gave him these endorsements. They even went down to South Texas and campaigned for him. They did this stuff despite the fact not only that he's anti-abortion, right, as you mentioned, not only that he has an A rating from the NRA, so he's an opponent on gun control. Like These are core Democratic concerns. But he also, his house was raided by the FBI. I mean, like, you know, the the, the number of, of issues were were you know it's a litany of 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 issues and 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 house leadership came through for him in a massive way and absolutely turned that election i mean when when he ran in 22 it was like a couple hundred votes was the difference it, it, you know you don't even have to be measured about that that certainly pushed him over the edge and 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 now he's saying no right that that incumbency protection racket should not extend to his more progressive colleagues despite the fact that it's the only reason he's still in washington yeah, no, and I mean, in his case, I mean, the argument that the Democratic Party leadership made was, well, we, you know, like, we preserve all our members, you know, it's not that we like what he stands for, but, you know, this is how we function as a party. This is how we can get, you know, unity as a party. And this, so, yeah, I mean, like, the, the sort of contradictions of that position, like, were they defending him because they love incumbents or were they defending him because they actually kind of like to have you know, like center-right Democrats as part of the coalition on a variety of issues. You know, like the contradictions of all that are becoming very apparent. And now in terms of, you know, I think a lot of listeners will be very concerned about all this. In terms of like, how can there be like a response? Do we have, now I know Bernie Sanders has already been sort of sounding the alarm, you know, going back for more than a year about APAC investment. And, you know, it seems like that seems to me like a kind of a good thing, like to make this visible. Like if this is actually out in the open, it becomes much more problematic and much more difficult to do. Like if APAC investment in uh, democratic elections, especially trying to make the Democratic Party more right wing, I would imagine that you can actually mobilize a lot of people and also, more importantly, a lot of funding to help the squad and other progressives. You can mobilize that by you know, actually bringing this issue to light and to like making it a polarizing issue. Yeah. So this is obviously something that has has is kind of changing in real time, what it means to take this money, sort of how this funding, how this campaign funding even works and stuff. It's becoming more visible, which I think is a critical sort of part of understanding how this whole thing works. And then, of course, you know, understanding how to combat it if you're a progressive. The, the, and, you know, like the, the notion that this is like funded by Republicans is not even like an, it's not an oblique sort of like, you know, we know that they raise money from Republicans and they endorse Republicans. It's like they're cashing million dollar checks from Trump mega donors, billionaires like Bernie Marcus, Paul Singer, like some of the most 
well-known Republican mega donors. And, and then they're spending, you know, like you can see the ad buys and everything else. The money is going straight into this. It's, it's not even like, you know, they raise money in this, in this, you know, this variegated and distant way. And then they're making these ad buys. It's like, they're taking money from those those particular people, and then they're putting that money directly into these ad ad spends. We know we know exactly what's happening. The, the, I think the other reason is not that, or the reason that they're they feel empowered to do this is not only because they were so successful in the twenty twenty two cycle with their thirty million dollar spend. It's because small dollar fundraising right now is very very weak. So mm-hmm. obviously, like members of the squad, one of the things that they've you know, espoused from the beginning is that they will not take corporate PAC money. They will not take super PAC support. They will only raise money from small dollar donors, which has been, you know, which was sort of a, a revolution in fundraising for, in, in the Democratic Party for a time. It was, hmm. a, you know, a very novel commitment and it worked has worked great to a point. But this year there's been really low enthusiasm. There's a number of reasons for that, probably. But the 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 fundraising numbers for for Cory Bush, for, you know, for Jamal Bowman, they're they're not good. They're low. They're low numbers. And so it's it's an interesting conundrum now where it's like, OK, we know we know like we know that money it wins and we know that, you know, spending more does correlate strongly to to these outcomes. And and if you're a small dollar, you know, reliant person, it's it's all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, these trends in fundraising and it's like it's it's not as easy as it was to raise money yeah. from small dollar. And and that's a huge concern now as well to, to the longevity of that project is also kind of up for grabs. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, I, in some ways, I mean, the fact that it's Apex intervention could actually be a benefit because, you know, you can actually rally people around that. Like, I think, the, well, you know, a lot of people are very, like, upset at the American policy towards Israel and particularly amongst our Democratic Party voters. Like, I think that, like, a rallying cry of, well, we have to defend the squad because we actually need people saying, you know, ceasefire and saying, you know, we have to, like, limit military aid to Israel. Like, I actually can imagine that you can kind of get, you know, substantial small um, funding for, for, for that rallying cry. Yeah, yeah. And we'll see as we get closer to Election Day, you know, how that how that scans, if that's scrutable. I mean, I think that this is one thing, actually, where there, the, the analog is, is to the NRA, that mm-hmm. this is like... This is something that, like the the impact of taking APAC money, what it means to be supported by APAC, what it means to take uh, their funding, I think is really radically changing in real time. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, for a long time, Democrats have have been proud to say that they take, you know, they've mm-hmm. courted APAC support not just because there's so so much money to be had by having that endorsement, but because they thought it was, you know, something to to pride oneself on as a candidate, um, bipartisan organization, you know, the whole run of it. And that used to be how the NRA operated. Like that was the NRA was a bipartisan organization. It, you know, endorsed Democrats. Democrats desperately wanted its endorsement and backing. We're proud to have it. And in a handful of cycles, it went from being that to something where no Democrat would ever, ever openly affiliate with this organization because we know obviously that it's a far right organization now. It's mm-hmm. it not only does it work on, you know, this incredibly unpopular gun policy, the total deregulation of of gun violence in, in the US but also on a handful of other Republican priorities that have nothing to do with gun policy. And, and and that shift happened pretty quickly. And I think that we might be seeing that with APAC as well, where what it means to take money from them, what it means to be one of their candidates, I think is different today than it was even a handful of weeks ago. And I think that's something that progressives will hope they can hammer on, hope that that's scrutable messaging wise, and maybe, right, is something that ends up sort of 
alienating that group from the party in a more meaningful way, which, which you know, would, would be a really profound change. Yeah, well, I, I mean, one can imagine ways in which that this could be accelerated or happen. And as I mentioned, I mean, just the very fact that Israel is so much in the news actually, I think, works against APAC because then, you know, they can't be just they're funding somebody, but Israel isn't salient to voters and you, can, you can't point out what's questionable about this group giving funding. But also, like all the other activities that APAC does in terms of, you know, they've given a lot of money, not just to Republicans, but to Republicans who are election deniers. And that's a really big issue for like Democratic Party voters. Like, like, and they've given, you know, they've very, been very closely aligned with tr- the Trumpist agenda in many ways. So like, I think that if, you know, like APAC is more, becomes more controversial, becomes more polarizing, becomes something that's actually discussed and discussed in ways that are, you know, partially about, you know, what's happening in the Middle East and how it's something that many Americans are opposed to, but also discussed in its, you know, involvement in American politics is involvement with, you know, some of the most distressed, distressing trends in terms of authoritarianism um, and the GI, GOP's rejection of democracy, then, you know, like to me, it's very easy to imagine the scenario you outlined, which is that APAC becomes like the NRA. Right, right, exactly. So, right, so APAC endorsed 109 Republicans who voted to overturn the election results, the 2020 election results. Like, this is not... They're not just dealing with, you know, garden variety Republicans, right? They're, they're absolutely in lockstep with the Trumpist vision of, of curtailing or, you know, overthrowing American democracy. I mean, it, it really is that extreme. And, and there's this obvious affinity between Netanyahu and Trump and, you know, the sort of political program there and, and, and the alliances and the affinities are, are, are very clear. And, and yeah, I think, right, making that whole thing, articulating that whole thing is a challenge, but I think it actually could be a a meaningful one on on messaging and and right i mean ultimately you don't spend a hundred million dollars on primaries out of a position of strength right it's it's if they really thought they had this popular mandate they wouldn't need to spend it, it, it you know so in a sense right it's 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 sort of a shock and awe thing where spending that much money on primary races is crazy like it is so <laughs> much money and especially you know there's not even that many, like there aren't that many open seats. Like they're not going to get involved in Senate races. Maybe Michigan, they might, because, mm. you know, that's an open seat, but like they can't really blow out a Senate race because those are too expensive. But, but, you know, like for a handful of house races, this is a colossal amount of money. At the same time, you don't spend that money if you have popular role behind you because you don't have to spend it. And, and so it's both a sort of show of, of force that sort of is undergirded by this weakness in, in, in the popularity of, of the policy and, and the program that they've invested in. And it's tough to knock off incumbents. You know, it's like these are popular incumbents. They're, they're well known. Like this is, ends up, can end up being a battle that you, you end up burning money. And, and I think that that's, a, that's the thing, too, is that obviously there's, you know, I think this is a, a moment where APAC feels very powerful because, you know, they're, you know, they're calling the shots on messaging and all sorts of stuff and in both parties in a lot of ways. But like, it's also, there's also a tinge of hubris here because it's like, you know, you, are you sure you want to go up against Rashida Tlaib is a very popular representative. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to really, you know, you're going to spend money to recruit someone and then you're going to pay to, to, to get, see this thing through, it's going to cost a lot and, and it might not work. And if it doesn't work, all of a sudden, this sort of big bad powerhouse that is that is APAC in DC looks a lot less formidable, and that is a you know that's a big change. That could be that could be really really lasting and consequential. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think you make a good case that this is going to be one of the big 
battles in the coming election. And I think it's something we should all pay attention to. And I, I think it's something the listeners in particular, it, I mean, our conversation, I think, might inform how they want to get involved with politics and what are some of the fights that are they might see as essential. So we'll keep an eye on this. And I just want to thank you for being on the program. I, it's, I think it's been a very illuminating discussion. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me. It's always a blast. Mm-hmm.